the Animal Medical Center, I look at it as an iconic piece of New York City. Um, and it's interesting to me that people that don't have pets know who we are. And some people with pets didn't know who we are. So if I can just get the word out that we're here, we're here for you. It's really, and I say this with all due respect to every other clinic and hospital in the country, I really do think AMC has it over everybody in so many different ways. And I, I, I honestly mean that. Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. On today's episode, I interviewed Kate Coyne, the CEO of the Animal Medical Center, along with one of the incredible veterinarians at the AMC, Anne Hohenhaus. Here's what Betsy bober Pallavi, founder of Manhattan Sideways, had to say about AMC. Stephen Rybeck, a childhood friend, has been a veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center for years. He has always spoken of the facility as being one of the best in the world. I promised him that one day I would reach East 62nd Street on my journey of walking the entire Manhattan grid and come in to write a piece for our website. Thus, in 2015, the Manhattan Sideways team had a fabulous experience on our guided tour of the hospital. It was a special moment for me when I stepped into Stephen's dental office and exclaimed, it's more like a people hospital than an animal hospital. Stephen smiled and immediately agreed. I was proud to watch this warm and gentle man taking care of a dog that had just been through major dental surgery. The center has been open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year since 1962. The door is never locked. A matter of fact, I was told that no one even knows where the keys might be. When we decided to enter the world of podcasts a few years later, I immediately reached out to Stephen and asked if he thought some on his team might be interested in having us interview them. We were delighted when CEO Kate Coyne agreed to share the history as well as some of her intimate encounters with the animals and their owners while running this incredible institution. The conversation that Ellie and I had with both Kate and Dr. Anne Elizabeth Hohenhaus, who came to AMC in 1986, and as she put it, I never left made us laugh and brought tears to our eyes. To quote Kate, there is nowhere else in the world that provides the kind of care that we do. And I might add, there is nowhere else that has so many people who are not only devoted to the animals that they care for, but also have a deep compassion for the humans who love them. My name is Kate Coyne. I'm the CEO here at the Animal Medical Center on 62nd in New York in New York City. Could you please tell me the story of how the Animal Medical Center got started? It's a very interesting story about how the Animal Medical Center got started. And what I like most about it is the fact that it was all female-driven at the time. So a little history on the Animal Medical Center. It was founded in 1910 by a woman called Ellen Prince Spire. And the Animal Medical Center then started as a temporary clinic on the Lower East Side, caring for the animals of poor families, people that could not afford care. Then in 1962, the Animal Medical Center moved to this building, which at that time was an eight-story complex on 62nd Street. And it was strategically placed, I think, here because it was on Hospital Row. So on this same street is every major hospital in the city and the Animal Medical Center. I don't know if they did that strategically at the time, but it certainly has made a big difference in, in how we function today. Today we have a nine-story building on 62nd Street, about uh, 90,000 square feet of space. Back then they had just a few veterinarians and a few 
animals to take care of. Today, we've got over 100 veterinarians, and we'll see 54,000 animals this year alone. Now, you used to work at a human hospital, actually. You were the CEO for a, a human hospital. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that experience has translated into the work that you do here? You know, when I came here, what struck me most about moving from the human side to the animal side, the animal world, if you will, is how very similar it was. Uh, the diseases are similar. The uh, drugs are similar. The equipment's similar. Uh, you know, I said the big difference is, that, you know, in the human hospital, we have beds. Here we have cages. There we have patients with two legs. Here we have patients with four legs. But it's very much the same in terms of the medicine. What is completely different, um, and I did human hospital management for almost 30 years, is the level of compassion and caring that I see on the animal side. If I could ever have translated that back on to the human side, I think I would have done an, uh, an amazing service to all of us who end up being treated at the... And you see more compassion here with the animals? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why do you think that is? You know, I'm not exactly sure, but when you look at the type of people that enter veterinary medicine, they're a different group of people. They're all super, super smart, um, but they also have an intuitiveness about them because they're patients can't tell them what's wrong. I mean, you can have the pet parent say, well, they're limping or they didn't eat or they're throwing up, but you can't say to the dog, so tell me how you feel, you know? It is a lot like dealing with pediatrics, you know? You're depending on the parent to kind of tell you. But there's some type of intuitiveness, I think, in veterinarians that exists at a greater detail and level than it does with human dogs. And I'm married to a human dog, so I'm not being pejorative about it. This is just what I see. Mm-hmm. Let's just fill in some of the gaps in your career path and how you sure. ended up first at a human hospital yeah. and then here yeah. at the medical um, center. I started out as a journalist, actually, and my daughter was born with a very serious birth defect, spina bifida. And I did some medical writing at the time, and I decided that, you know what, I really need to know more about, I just can't write about it, I really need to know about it. So I wanted to get involved in medicine in some way, and the best way for me to do that was to go back to school. I had a biology degree to begin with, but I ended up becoming a respiratory therapist. I didn't really want to be a nurse because I was acting as a nurse at home. I wasn't really smart enough to be a doctor, so I chose this respiratory therapy career, which was phenomenal for me. I loved it. It took me from uh, the burn unit to the neonatal unit. I cared for all of the uh, patients that were on life support. And then, of course, I needed a little bit more money, so I ended up going back to get a master's in business and ended up moving into administration. So I worked in human hospitals and administration really for 20-some years before coming here. And I actually had retired in, I think it was 09. My husband was a cardiolo- is a cardiologist, and he was retiring. He said, we're going to retire. And I said, well, okay. So at the end of a year, I cleaned out all my closets. I had done all the work at home that I thought I couldn't wait to do. And it was like, what am I going to do? Um, and just serendipitously, one of the board members from here knew a board member at the hospital where I had been working and said, you know, we've gone through several CEOs and we're looking for a new one. Do you have anybody that might you think might be interested? And they said, well, she's leaving for Florida in two weeks, but I know she's an animal lover. Give her a call. So I did it as a favor to the board member. I said, I'm not going back to work. I'm going to go to Florida for the winter. Da, 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 da. So I didn't even really prepare for the interview. I just kind of came in. 
and I was in actually this room, and there were like eight or nine people, and they asked me all these questions, and I was, well, I answered them, and but I left that day, and I said to my husband, I wish I had prepared for this job, because I think I would have really liked it, and he said, well, you didn't get it, we're leaving, so we went to Florida, and I get a call in like three days, would you like to come back and have a second interview, so I came up from Florida, had the second interview, and here I am, and it's been the best 10 years of my life. How did you end up in New York? Because you grew up in the country, right? And Coming to this job was, I mean, aside from coming into New York, like for a show yeah. or some kind of a, I was not a New York person okay. at all. Okay. So, so the human I, hospital was not the in New humans York. humans was in New Jersey. Yeah. 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 Okay. In fact, when I came to New York, I needed a map to figure out how to get to where I was going. Yeah. So as I told you, like <laughs> yeah. it's first, second, third, fourth, or whatever. <laughs> I will say that uh, the New York clientele are very well-educated people. They know what they want and they know how they want it and they know when they want it. So it's a little bit different from running a an animal hospital, say, out in the country. We're very, very client-focused, very patient satisfaction-oriented. We know that people in the city like to get in and get out quickly, so we've set up different types of programs, especially in our emergency room, which is open 24-7. We've never closed. I always say that we don't even have a lock on the door. It never closes. But people expect to get in and get out and get treated well. The New York clientele, they're they're well-educated and they're demanding. So we... um, we try to meet all those demands. But I will say this. I've never seen a, a group of people more committed to the care of their animals than I have seen here. They're not just animal lovers. They are pet parents. And do you feel that people here appreciate what you do, that New Yorkers appreciate what I you're think able to do? I think definitely. And I think that them, you know, shows up in the amount of support that we get. You know, as a nonprofit, we depend on... Uh, donations as well as what we can do in terms of generating our care business. But I think they do appreciate it. I mean, I I have stacks and stacks of letters of people that write and say what a difference we've made in their life. I mean, really taking care of their animal is taking care of their family. Could you describe for me a typical day in your life here? Sure. I think I have the best job in the world, number one, because where do you get to walk in the door each and every day and love what you do? It's, It's so rare. Um, So I'll come in, and the first thing I'll do is after I check in and let everybody know I'm here, is I like to go down to the second floor, which is really the heart of the hospital. And, for example, yesterday there were over 204 people that came through our doors. And so there's 204 stories yesterday that I could have talked to and found out about. But I like to go down, see how things are going. I meet the most amazing people. I meet the most amazing staff each and every day taking care of these people. So eventually I do have to come up and do my real job. You know, my job entails a lot of organizational management. We're a nonprofit organization. A lot of my work is surrounded by fundraising. Also, you know, I my role here is to assure the highest quality medical care possible for the animals. And I really feel that bringing the highest level of care and safety to the animal world that I know about and manage in the human world is part of my responsibility. And there's days where you have some of the most emotional experiences ever. And one of those days, and I'm sorry for the emotion, but we take care of all the NYPD dogs. And at the end of their service, they go to their handler. They belong to the, the policeman that had taken them through their work years. And like all animals at some point, they all have to end their life. So when those dogs, there's nothing more that we can do for them, and it's time for them to leave, 
we bring them here, and the police will all come with all of their other dogs, and they all have a final salute for this dog. But to be a part of that is an honor. And it is, um, excuse me, but it, it really is emotional for me to see this. And where else can you do that? I mean, where else can you see that and be a part of it and know that you make a difference? That, I think, is the biggest difference between this job and the human job. I feel like I make a difference every day. That's amazingly important. So incredible because, of course, you were making a difference at the human hospital, too. But I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. But that you feel it here. You feel it. And you, you walk through the building and you feel it from each and every person. You just have to sit back and watch it and it kind of envelops you, the feeling, the compassion, um, the love that these people have for what they do. It just shows on their faces. It shows in the way they handle the animals. It shows in the way they treat each other. It's really a pleasure to be here each and every day. I don't know what the city of New York would do if they didn't have the Animal Medical Center here. I mean, you can come here with one little thing wrong, and there's 17 specialists that will say, well, wait a minute, I see a little rash over here, or I don't like the way that dog's walking. It's all under one roof. There's no place like it in the world, really, where you can come in and know that you've got 17 specialists and services that are going to be totally able to take care of your animal, whether it's a dog or a cat or a gerbil or a squirrel or a bird. Um, we even brought a baby horse in here early on, which was interesting. So we always say if it can fit through the door and into the elevator, we can take <laughs> care of it. And when I first came here, the vets came down to me and said, we have a friend that's working at an equine center, and they knew I was a horse lover. And this horse, he couldn't breathe properly. He needed surgery. Nobody could do it anywhere in the world for him. And they said, oh, yeah, we do horses here. And I said, we do? Oh, yeah, yeah, we do horses here. And I said, well, all right. I mean, I was here like three weeks. I said, I'm going to get fired. Nobody told me I could bring horses into the building. And that's when I said to him, well, look, if it fits in the elevator, you can bring it. So we ended up doing a, a, a procedure up in our interventional radiology suite, and the horse left with his mom, and it was like the greatest day ever watching. And then we squeeze him into the CAT scan. You know, we have the same we have the same equipment here that I had in my human hospital. Mm -hmm. Actually, some of it's better than what I had in my human hospital. So that was like one of my favorite stories of having this horse come in out of the clear blue. We triaged him in the parking lot. We did his ultrasound in the parking lot. Um, and we brought him up here, and we put him in the OR. We moved him over to the CAT scan. It was a full day of just joy. We do a lot of work for the uh, Bronx Zoo. Uh, recently, we had uh, penguins come that had some kind of a lung infection that they couldn't figure out what was wrong with. They were dying. And, you know, most of the time, the animals have to be uh, sedated to be, because you can't tell them, lay still and don't breathe and hold your breath, so they all have to be sedated. Well, the penguins because they could stand up. We put in plexiglass boxes with air holes, and they just went straight through the CAT scan standing up. It was a great story because they were able to diagnose that they had some type of a fungus that we could treat. I am wondering if you have people and animals coming from outside of the city often, or if, if it tends to be yeah. New Yorkers. Well, the bulk of it is New Yorkers, but we have animals that have come from Australia, from Japan, from South America, all over the world will come here for treatment that they can't get anywhere else. Almost every state in the country has sent us something at some point in time. Not too long ago, we had a woman that drove all night from Canada just to get here with her dog to get dialysis. There was nobody in between where she was coming from, from Toronto to here that had a dialysis program. The dog was acutely poisoned. That dog went on dialysis here. We saved it. So 
we are really a worldwide organization, even though we're located right here on this little street. Uh, they come from everywhere. When people come here, they say that this is sometimes their last hope, that there's everybody else is telling them there's nothing else that we can do, there's nothing that we know of, there's nothing we can do for your animal. And they come here, and we actually save many of them. Each year we have this little event called Living Legends, where we will honor a dog that has been through um, treatments or care where everybody else had given up on them and said there's nothing we can do. And they're here and they're alive and they're well and they're having a good quality of life, so we honor them every year. It takes us weeks to figure out which three we're going to honor. We try to do a dog and a cat or two dogs and a cat. There are hundreds of stories of those living legends. So, um, yes, they come from all over the world. Happy to see them. Can you speak about how you ensure that things run smoothly, especially considering that you, of course, can't be here 24 hours a day, seven days a week? I try, but I can't always be. Um, it's a challenge, but it's like a human hospital as well, open 24-7. You've got to make sure that you have the best possible people working for you. You've got to assure that you have a good quality of work life for them and so that they can balance home and work because it, this is a very stressful place to work, and you understand that people that come here... Yes, there are pe animals that are coming for just wellness checks and wellness care, but the bulk of them come because they're sick or they need surgery or there's been a traumatic event in that animal's life. So you have to make sure when you select the people to work for you that they understand what they're going to be working in and what they're going to be doing. And I think as an employer and as a CEO, I try to make sure that I balance their work life for them, understanding that compassion fatigue is a big issue for caregivers, a big issue for human caregivers. I think that it, it makes it even more stressful for animal caregivers because there's frequently not the ability to always save them. And so animals end up having to be put down when the time is right. And I think that's a very hard thing when you're trained to just keep, keep going and keeping everything alive and healthy as long as you can when you know it's not always possible. And I think that Decisions have to be made. Here's what we can do to you, and here's what we can do for you. And just because we can do something to the dog or the cat or the animal, if it's not going to give them the quality of life that they deserve, then you have to make that hard decision. And they make that hard decision all the time. I think that's a stress that's added to the veterinary profession that's much greater maybe than on the human side. Let's take some time to talk about, firstly, the different kinds of services that you offer mm -hmm. and then what the process looks like for someone who brings in an animal and needs something mm -hmm. from you but maybe can't afford to right. pay for the care. Veterinary care is expensive like medical care. There's no way around it and you know fortunately a lot of people do uh, take insurance, get insurance which definitely helps and we recommend people get insurance. Um, but everybody's charged the same, you know, and we don't. And actually, when we we compare our prices to our competition, now we're nonprofit. So a lot of people think, well, if you're nonprofit, you shouldn't charge anything. Well, you have to charge something. You can't keep a nine-story building with millions and millions of dollars of equipment and and personnel going without charging for your services. But when we do a market search, we actually are below the cost of many of our competitors who are for-profit. Um, the other interesting thing about AMC that people may not know is all of our doctors are salaried. They get a salary whether they see one patient today or 15. All of the for-profits work on what they call production. So they have to, they make their money by how much they bill, 
how many uh, services they render. That doesn't happen here. Our doctors get to make the best medical decision based on what the animal needs, not what I need to make my my numbers this month. That's a huge difference between uh, our institution and, and, and the for-profit institutions. We see a lot of people that come to us in the middle of the night that weren't planning on an emergency visit that maybe financially can't even afford care. Fortunately for those people in the city, we have many what we call community funds or charity funds. We have funds for people that come into the emergency room, totally unexpected, called a patient assistance fund. They need blood work or they need an x-ray. They have no money. We can put them in that fund. We have funds for animals and their owners who have cancer that can't necessarily afford the full cancer treatment. We have a cancer fund. Um, some of our animals that have surgery need rehabilitation afterwards. We have a rehabilitation fund. And we, those come from donations? They come from, we raise funds, yes, we raise all that through donations. All of the seeing eye dogs, whether people can afford it or not, are treated for free here. We, we raise funds for that. There was one in the lobby when I came was in this morning. Was there one? Yeah, mm -hmm. they're really special, mm -hmm. those dogs. We also have a fund called uh, the 401k9 fund, which was originally set up to take care of uh, NYPD dogs, bond-sniffing dogs, uh, terror dogs. And while we take care of them during their healthy years, we like to make sure that their retirement years are good. And we've just expanded that program to military service dogs. Uh, so we'll see veterans come in that need a support dog, and they can't afford care. So we put them right through that uh, 401k9 fund. And we, we had a lot of fun naming that fund because it was a retirement fund for dogs. And I think watching those people come in, it's really life or death for some of those people. They can't function without those dogs. So if we can keep them healthy and keep them together, there's no greater joy in my life than seeing them walk out of here together. We've had a couple servicemen come in who had very brutal service years. And the one gentleman that I remember when he came in with his dog, he would not leave the building. He slept in my office on a blow-up bed because he couldn't leave the building without his dog. And he was here for two days uh, while we took care of that dog for him. And you watch these people. It, it's incredible what those dogs do for these people. And to know that you can keep that dog healthy for as long as you can and keep them together, I mean, there's no greater joy than watching that happen. One other little fund I think it's worth mentioning is called AMC to the Rescue. So we work with 5013C rescue groups. They have to be a 5013C. They can't just be Kate's kitties. It has to be a real group. Um, and so they can submit to us an application for an animal that needs something done that would be costly somewhere else, but it will make that animal adoptable. So say, for example, we've had animals that come that had some kind of a really bad eye problem. We can fix that eye problem, we do it for free, and then that animal becomes adopted and it goes to its forever home. So AMC to the Rescue is also a fund that we raise money for, and we've serviced, oh gosh, I can't even tell you, four or 500 animals that came here for care in the last couple of years that now are living happily with their forever families. So there's that option too for the rescue groups for us to help them out, because they're really good folks that put those, take in those animals, foster them. And you can't, it's hard to give away a, an older or a sick animal. It's easy to get a puppy that's healthy or a kitten that's healthy. What happens to those ones that have a real medical issue that people say, I'd like to adopt it, but I can't afford to do that. We can do it for them. I, I know my feeling on it, but given that the health program in the United States is 
not necessarily serving all of the humans that it needs to serve. How do you talk about and justify the money going towards taking care of non-humans? You know, it's a very difficult question because I have a lot of friends that I will solicit for funds and they'll say, well, why why don't I just give to pediatric cancer? Or there's all these other diseases that humans have that need help as well. And the answer that I have is there's only so much that we can do for everybody, and we should try to do as much for everybody as we can. But the animals have no voice. And I think if you have healthy animals, you have a healthier world. When I see the difference that animals make in the lives of people, I look at my elder clients, that dog or that cat or whatever they have, that's their only connection to the world right now it makes them get up in the morning and feed them it makes them get up in the morning and take them for a walk without that animal they would be dead or they would have no life I also look at the fact that what we do with animals in some of our clinical research we don't create any disease but we study disease much of what we study with our animals with money that we raise to do that ends up helping people Um, several years ago we worked with a Sloan Kettering and putting together a melanoma vaccine. It's not quite ready for humans, but that interaction on the human side and the animal side is going to make a difference for humans in the long run. When you talk about being able to um, raise funds for animals versus humans, we're kind of like raising them for both. It just decides what side of the ledger the dollars go on as far as I'm concerned. And of course, you know, I'm an animal lover, so it's easy for me to say, I want the money to go to my animals. But it is an interesting question, and you do have to balance it. The unique thing of being on Hospital Row is that it gives us access to all of the best hospitals in New York City right on the same block. But aside from the the location, we work very well with human doctors on our One Health initiative. So the One Health initiative is really combining the best of human medicine and animal medicine in order to have outcomes for both. So we have many research studies combined with different hospitals in the city. Um, Our Cancer Institute is working right now on the incidence of mammary tumors in animals and breast cancer in women. And there's a lot of information that's being brought forward regarding whether or not an animal is spayed early or whether or not a woman starts menstruation early. So there's a lot of information that is going to be published shortly about the differences but the similarities of breast cancer in women and breast tumors, mammary tumors in animals. Uh, We also are doing a lot of research on um, leukemias and lymphomas. We have a huge amount of cats with lymphoma. People get lymphoma, so there's a lot of protocols that we look at with animals in terms of treatment. But the point is being able to collaborate with the human doctors is really something unique. We put on a program every year. This will be, I think, our fourth or fifth year where we'll take a particular topic and bring in the best of the human doctors and the best of the veterinary doctors. So one year it was on oncology. Uh, One year it was on cardiology. This year now it's going to be on emergency cases. So we have pediatricians coming to work with the veterinarians on pediatric and animal emergencies since they're kind of the same in terms of sizing. So that One Health allows us to bring the best and the top in the city or from the country will come and they'll work with our people on putting together this conference. So it is open to everybody. Most of those that come are doctors and or veterinarians or nurses and techs, but it's it's quite interesting from a non-professional, if you will. Our major fundraiser each year is called the Top Dog Gala. So at that gala, we honor a dog uh, for different reasons, like we've had 
uh, dogs that were uh, actually we honored the first um, comfort dogs, two big St. Bernards that started to do work with uh, police departments. They started out at Sandy Hook after the shooting to lend support to those families. We had another dog, Dingo, that was a dog from Afghanistan that saved so many lives by being an IED detector. We've had uh, another dog named Hurricane that was the dog that took down the intruder into the White House. So we honor those dogs, one, one of those dogs. And then we have what's called the Brooke Astor Award, who, by the way, said, if ever I get sick, take me to the Animal Medical Center. I don't want to go to a hospital. And that is to honor someone that has been a philanthropic to the uh, animal world and to AMC that's connected to AMC. So that's in December. And we have a very, very special honoree this year that I'm not allowed to say yet, but you'll hear about it. Let's talk about your your animals and okay. your personal animal background. All right. Most people talk about their kids, and I could talk about them later, but I'll talk about <laughs> my animals first. So growing up, I grew up in the country. And so my mother used to say that anything that crossed our yard became a pet. So we had everything from... Uh, raccoons. We had a duck that couldn't swim. We had, one day my mother came home, and I think this is what kind of put her over the edge finally. We had one bathroom for four kids and two adults in this little house, and she came home, and in the one bathtub was all kinds of straw and hay and a baby fawn. And she said, that's it. We need the bathtub. The fawn cannot stay in the bathtub. So we ended up putting in a playpen until it was big enough to go out. We had dogs, we had cats, all kinds of birds, anything really that crossed our path, we would take in as a pet. And so, was this just because of a pure love of animals? We just loved them. Just, yeah. We just loved them. We couldn't get enough of them. We had a duck that couldn't swim, a duck named Harrison Tweed. So we adopted him from some farm. He was going to either, I don't know what they were going to do, but we got him. Oh, and um, great James Harriet. We had a great, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we had a pond and we would bring him down and throw him in the pond and all right, Harrison, go ahead and swim. And we'd lock the gate and we'd run home. And by the time we get home, we'd see the grass separating and the duck would come home. And all that duck would do would be to sit on the porch. It just wanted to sit on the porch. It did not want to be a duck. Well, I had four rescued cats. I've lost two in the past year and a half. I've had seven horses. I have uh two right now. One's retired and one is waiting for me to recover from my knee replacement. And eventually I say when I retire, if I ever do, I want to get my German Shepherd back. I grew up with German Shepherds and we loved them. So that's my goal. I'll probably end up with some kind of a pocket pet by the time I'm retired because I won't be able to handle the Shepherd, mm -hmm. but I'd like to have my dogs again too. What recommendations do you have for people who have animals with hospital anxiety? who, you know, are very nervous about coming in. I don't know. Do you have any tips for how to keep them calm? Well, you'll see some animals that come to our door that actually won't even come down the street. I watched a friend of ours who lives up on Sutton Place, and her dog, when he gets to the corner, just freezes, Stops. and she has to pick him up and carry him in. And then there are these dogs that get here, and they can't wait to get in. Now, I don't know if they can't wait to get in because at the desk there are treats <laughs> or nothing's really been scary that's happened to them. It, you know, it, it's different. With a kid, you can kind of talk them out of it a little bit. With an animal, you just kind of hold them and love them and, and, and try to calm them down. Um, there's really nothing blindfold them, lie to them. Like when we used to bring our, we used to bring our pets to um, get fixed or neutered, we would say, you're just going to get new glasses today, Weezer. Don't worry about it. You know? <laughs> Did he believe me? I don't know. But we, we never used the word, you know, neuter in front of our, our male animals. So. 
The next voice you'll hear is that of Dr. Anne Hohenhaus, one of the amazing veterinarians at AMC. Dr. Hohenhaus has been at AMC for more than 30 years now and has incredible insight not only into the work of the Animal Medical Center, but also into the life of animals and animal owners in New York City. So I know the title of this blog is like Sideways or Side Street. I never thought of AMC as being on a side street before. I think of side streets as being kind of sleepy, not much happening. Like the side street around the corner from me where the shoe repair guy is, the laundry place is, and the marginal Asian restaurant. And it's kind of leafy and green and kind of narrow. And I never thought of AMC as being on a side street, probably because... The place has, you know, way more going on and way more personality than the typical side street in New York. So I was thinking about that when I looked at the title of the blog and said, why is AMC on a side street blog? And then I said, oh, we are on a side street. But it it was interesting. I never thought about it that way, probably because of the kind of place that it is. My name is Anne Hohenhaus, and I'm a veterinarian. And I'm board certified in both oncology and small animal internal medicine. I have a bunch of different things that I do here. Mostly, I take care of sick dogs and cats. I've been here since 1986. I was going to come for a year. Uh, I came to do an internship. I'd spent a year in private practice. And I thought that it would be interesting to come to AMC where I could learn other skill sets. And I really like the practice that I worked for. And I thought if I got more skills, I could go back and that practice would be better because I would learn skills that I could do. And then I just never left. Because you've been here for 30 years, I'm wondering if you can tell me about the changes that you've seen at AMC in the community in New York that you've noticed. There's been an information explosion. in just about everything, not veterinary medicine's not unique, but the information explosion means it's much harder to keep up uh, with what's going on because there's always some new test or procedure or way to treat something and keeping up with that is a challenge, which is why you wanna be in a place, well, for me, I wanna be in a place like AMC because if I haven't heard of it, I'm hoping someone else I talk to has heard of it and can say, no, no, didn't you hear about this? I think we should do this. And so that's where the collaborative environment of the hospital is tremendous. Because of that information explosion, have you seen any difference in the way that people think about their pets? You, you said that the people coming into you know, the emergency room, it's, it's very much the same, but, but do you see a difference in people's relationships? Well, I think the difference in the relationship has changed, and that's not just at AMC. But 40 years ago, the dog was tied in a doghouse in the backyard. Now, no doghouses. Or if it is, it's, it's like a catio in your backyard, um, you know, an outdoor space for your cat but the cat comes back in at night. And so pets are much more a part of the family these days. And so people want for their pets what they want for themselves. And so people will do acupuncture in their pets. Um, People want complementary and alternative medicine for pets. And people want gluten-free diets and grain-free diets and all those kinds of things for their pets. Maybe these days, to not to the best advantage of the pet, but it's absolutely clear from that that people want for their pets what they want for themselves. But I'll tell you what's different about New York than other places is. I remember as an intern 
a client coming in and the complaint about their dog was that it normally eats 25 dog nuggets, you know, dog food nuggets a day. And for three days, it had only eaten 20 dog nuggets per day. And I said, I don't doubt that you're seeing a difference, but I'm not really sure that I can pick up something on an examination that's so subtle as that. New Yorkers' ability to know that there's something wrong with their pet sometimes exceeds my ability to find it because we live in little spaces in New York City and we're right on top of each other. You know, these kittens have a little pen right outside my kitchen door and I know partly they're there for a reason so that I can make dinner and keep an eye on them and say, oh, this one is not eating very well or this one hasn't used a litter box in a while. And I don't think I'm any different than any other New Yorkers in having my pets, even though they're temporary cats close by and so you know what they're doing and then quick you pick up what's going on and you recognize that they're sick far before I think people whose pets are not quite as much on top of them as ours are. The other thing is that New Yorkers tend to take their dogs a lot of places so if you go into TJ Maxx up on First Avenue their dogs in the slot of the shopping cart because they don't sell food so you can take your dog in there and there'll be dogs at the dry cleaners and dogs you know here there everywhere because people say well it seems like it should get out of the house kind of thing so you see dogs a lot more places in New York City than you will see them in the suburbs because people say well he's got a whole backyard of his own except he goes out in the backyard and lays down in the sunshine and doesn't do very much so I think New York City has a great quality of life. Has great health care, too, by the way. Oh, they're so sweet. Sorry, I didn't know who's going to... Oh, these are talkers, boy. Yeah. <laughs> these are big talker kittens. Oh. How many kittens do you foster every year? You know, it varies depending on how much time I have, um, and it also varies on how much care they need. So if you got four kittens that were eating on their own and you just needed to feed them and change their litter box, four is easy. Kittens like Letty and Lucretia, who I have to bottle feed every five hours and they don't know how to use the litter box yet, I can't handle more than two. That Two is really my limit. Occasionally I've had three when they haven't wanted to break up a litter, yeah. but it's a lot. Yeah. Um, it's a lot. It's so much fun. Um, and there are lots and lots of need for people to bottle feed kittens, which is it's a skill, and you know the ASPCA provides training for people, but um, you can't just, it's not intuitive, let's just put it that way. I wanted to ask very quickly, um, I, had, I had brought this up with Kate, but I think you're the one to answer this question. What recommendations would you have for someone who has an anxious pet especially when it comes to going to the vet. Is there anything that pet owners can do to help with that anxiety? Well, I think there's a lot of things that, that lead up to that anxiety. So one is, if you look over there in the kitten pen, notice that that carrier is sitting there wide open with a nice blankie in it. And stuffing your pet in a carrier twice a year makes them crazy. So I think you should leave your carrier out. Now, in New York City, that is somewhat challenging, but I just leave it in the middle of the floor and let the kittens go in and out so they are not afraid of going in the carrier because that's one thing that starts everything off bad. Um, then the other thing that you can do 
this is a little harder for cats, but you could still do it with your cat, is just take your cat to the vet and don't go to the vet, just sit in the waiting room. Or ask the receptionist to weigh your dog on the scale. Most veterinary hospitals have like a walk-on, walk-off scale. Weigh the dog, get a treat, because usually there's a treat at the desk, and then go home. Get them used to going to the vet when it's not always a vet visit, just stop by and visit. That's actually really easy in New York City because most people pick a vet that's walkable because it was hard. It used to be hard to get a taxi to take you somewhere with an animal, so that was easy. Then get the pet used to going to the vet, get used to the carrier, used to going to the veterinarian's office, and then be sure that the pet has plenty of treats while it's at the veterinarian's office so it associates some good things with being examined. You know, I, I have to tell you, I'm not that wild about going to the doctor either. Um, but because I'm a human being, we can rationalize why it's important. And it's not always rationalizable um, when you're a dog and you don't speak. So I think trying to make it a good experience as well. And then maybe after the veterinarian, you know, when I used to take my kid to the pediatrician, we'd always go to Eli's afterwards and get a special treat after the doctor's office. And so, you know, maybe after the veterinarian's office, there's a trip to the dog run or um, a special treat or, you know, a trip to the dog bakery that's close by sort of thing and, and make, it a, make it a good experience. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening. My name's Ellie, and this has been a podcast by Manhattan Sideways. If you're interested in learning more about the Animal Medical Center or about the thousands of other small businesses on the side streets of Manhattan, be sure to check out our website, sideways.nyc, and follow us on social media at NYSideways. See you next time. The Flatiron District, anchored by its namesake, the Flatiron Building, is a world-renowned dining and retail destination. Beyond notable award winners like Cosme on 22nd Street, and retail flagships lining Fifth Avenue, the neighborhood side streets are packed with the type of hidden gems that everyone wants to know. Grab a roll at Australian Cafe Burke Street Bakery on 28th Street. Head over to 26th to browse the racks at French clothing boutique Noir Blanc. For a relaxation experience like no other, Inscape on 21st will guide your meditation. The Flatiron 23rd Street Partnership also hosts free events on the Flatiron Plaza, like the 23 Days of Flatiron Cheer Holiday Program and the Flatiron Summer Series, showcasing neighborhood faves. For insider info on neighborhood happenings, visit flatirondistrict.nyc or at flatironny.